Hi everyone, I'm Joseph Long, and this is episode two of This is the Long Version. Stories and musings about 21st century parenting, education, and organizing the creative process. Enlightening conversations with special guests about music, film, art, family, history, and the outdoors. With a cup of reheated coffee from the top of a Pacific Northwest mountain, I'm Joseph Long, and this is the Long Version. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm glad you're here. I'm here as well, and I also decided to appear as a special guest in the second episode of my podcast because my wife asked if she could interview me. So you will be hearing from me responding to her questions, and it is entertaining and illuminating, I think, in certain ways. So you have that to look forward to. Also, some other topics of interest, a continuation of some things that I talked about in the first podcast. Thank you again for listening to the first one if you made it through. Um, I will be continuing to talk about some topics dear to my heart, including uh, parenting, childrening, music, Greek and Latin, some history, some science, some religion, telling a few stories here and there, and chatting with a couple special guests, as well as an update on what's happening with our uh, pandemic. Thank you. These are a few thoughts on education, and it's called Aristotle was wrong, and sometimes I am too. Aristotle, the 300s BC philosopher and teacher of a young Alexander the Great, made a lot of mistakes, so he and I already have that in common. I haven't done anything quite as monumental as perpetuating a model of the planetary system that everyone erroneously relied on for a thousand years plus, but I've made a lot of mistakes. I don't think Aristotle's mistakes negate some of the great ways he approached life and learning, though. First, he was a tenuous conjecturer. He loved to observe what was around and then come up with ideas based on those observations. But he was often unsure of whether or not he was right. He thought he might be, but was willing to acknowledge that he also might not be. He urged others to check and cross-check him, but he gave people a starting place for ideas. And then later, much, much later, others came along and proved some of his ideas completely wrong. Second, he had an enthusiasm for teaching. He loved to share his observations and knowledge, and perhaps more than that, share his process and philosophy for gathering data and knowledge. The problem is, many of his pupils took the concrete aspects of what he taught without absorbing his humility and willingness to try ideas out with the understanding you might be wrong, and that's okay. Some of his words and teachings became dogma, but they may not be, probably wasn't, what he intended. His intent, I hope and believe, was to educate and train his acolytes to develop their own systems and methodologies for examining, observing, and making their own inferences and hypotheses, not to mindlessly, endlessly regurgitate his. Third, he loved to classify and organize, the granddaddy of all that. And I love the organization of knowledge, data, and systems in ways that makes sense. In fact, I'm going to be talking soon about another fellow in history that I'm a big fan of by the name of Carl Linnaeus. But for now, we'll just leave you with Aristotle and the fact that he was wrong about a lot of things and he still gets remembered. Cool guy. What was your name? Um, Ivander. Ivander. And I always forget, how old are you? I'm three. Tell me the music that you like to listen to right now. I like listening to ABBA. ABBA? What is one of your favorite ABBA songs? I like... um, Money, Money, Abba. Would you sing just a little snippet of Money, Money for me, please? Money, Money, Abba. Money, Money, Abba. 
Yeah, would you sing some of the lyrics, like not just the title, but some of the lyrics? Money, money, I bet on the money is what I sing. Money, 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 funny, and the one on the world. Whoa, what's the news? Some slow. This and Logan do. Oh, mommy, this is and mama, my, 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 funny, and the one on the world. Last question. What did you learn about in mathematics this week? I, I learned about doing the names on it. The names of what? Um, the names on people on the markets. Do you enjoy mathematics and learning about numbers and patterns? Yeah, I do. And I love how much you love to learn. Thank you again for being here. Once once we're done recording, I would love to give you a hug. Would that be okay? Yeah, you going to hug me now. Would you like a big hug or a little hug? A big hug. Okay, I'm going to give you a big hug. Let me take my headphones off. Thank you again for being here. Ivander, three years old, my son. Goodbye, everyone. Love you. Caesar non grammaticos. Our Latin for this episode is not a single word. It's a phrase because there are so many wonderful phrases in Latin that are succinct and cut right to the point. Caesar non supergrammaticos means Caesar is not above the grammarians. And it's the idea that a leader is not above reality. A leader can issue a mandate or an edict or a ruling. They can try to change what they want, but in the end, they cannot change what simply is a fact, what is reality. So the idea uh, in this particular case, there are a couple different historical anecdotes that that are used, uh, but in one of them anyway, then the emperor was conferring with a group of grammarians. Yes, in years past, there were actually positions uh, where grammarians were considered to be important because language and words were important, perhaps more important than they appear to be at this particular time in history. So Caesar was conferring with, with the grammarians to find out if he was correct on something. And he said, yeah, this word should mean this because I say it is. And somebody stood up and said, no, you can say this if you want, but you are not above the grammarians. You are not above the rules of grammar. In a fight between Caesar and grammar, grammar is going to win. We could have a philosophical argument about the fluidity of language and how it changes. But in a larger context, I love this phrase, Caesar non supergrammaticos, the idea that no matter what power you have, you cannot control and subjugate reality or facts. I think that's a very apropos phrase for these times. Caesar non supergrammaticos. Caesar is not above the grammarians. I've had some requests to talk about American history, so I am jumping into that with a super short version in which I will answer questions that listeners have sent to me. Spoiler alert, and in the spirit of transparency, reluctant transparency, nobody sent these questions in. I invented them myself, and I'm going to answer the questions that I am asking myself. First question. So Europeans pretty much discovered North America, right? Um, no. There were quite a few people here before Europe, quote-unquote, discovered the continent. The fancy word is indigenous. A simple and accurate phrase is first peoples, because it says who is here first. First peoples, also known as Native Americans, lived in the Americas long before 
Leif Erikson in the 11th century or Christopher Columbus in the 15th century ever showed up. Did the United States really do slavery or is that fake news? Sadly, yes. The United States did engage in slavery. It is not fake news. Fake news, being a term coined to accurately describe most of the quote-unquote alternative facts coming out of our dear president's mouth. It is also a phrase that he has unsuccessfully tried to flip and use to describe any reality involving facts that disagree with what he would like the past to retroactively become. Tobacco became big business in the 1600s, and farmers needed cheap labor for the labor-intensive work. They figured that the only thing better than cheap labor was free labor, and thus the transatlantic slave trade got a whole new life and began a horrific period in American history that traumatized and destroyed millions of lives and whose repercussions and influence continue through today. Next question, how come the United States isn't part of the United Kingdom? Well, Britain, part of the United Kingdom, got involved in a super expensive conflict, the Seven Years' War, also known as the French and Indian War. Wars cost a lot of money. To raise more money, Britain raised taxes to ridiculous levels on the colonists living across the Atlantic, and these colonists did not have representation in Parliament. The colonists objected to Britain's unfair taxation and authoritarian laws and eventually decided to break free in the mid-1770s. They wrote up a Declaration of Independence, known as the Declaration of Independence, which basically laid out equal rights for all humankind. The document basically said that as long as you were a white, Christian, non-slave male who owned property, then you were equal with any other man in the same position and therefore had a number of basic rights. This document went on to inspire other countries to soon rebel in support of basic human equality, most notably France, which did so a decade later in striking and bloody fashion. It may seem ridiculous now that this basic idea of equality applied only to a specific group, but at the time it was revolutionary. The idea that, the idea that kings and emperors did not have a divine right to rule and therefore dictate and change laws at their pleasure. Britain wasn't a fan of this independence idea. They sent an army. There was a war. It was ugly and long. Finally, the colonists won. Next question. Are the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution the same thing? No. The Declaration was a universal statement to the world that the colonists were separating themselves from the authority of England and emphasized the idea of basic human equality as opposed to the divine right of kings to rule. The Constitution is a complementary doc document written after the Revolutionary War that laid the blueprint and foundation for how the new government should be set up and how the basic individual rights of every American should be protected. The first ten amendments to the Constitution are called the Bill of Rights. Super good patriots are protective of all of them and don't pick and choose which ones are worth protecting and which ones aren't. I personally am a huge fan of First Amendment protections like the right to free speech and the right to a free press. Most presidents in our history have been frustrated at these two at some point in their tenure because they can be very aggravating if you're in power and people are saying and writing things you don't like. But most presidents have accepted that this is part of what makes America a great country. Next question. What's the big deal about cotton gins? The invention of the cotton gin in the late 1700s made cotton farming super profitable, but farm owners still needed labor, 
more labor, more cheap labor, or more free labor, which meant more slaves. Ick. Before the cotton gin, slavery was starting to wane. But when the gin came along, there was a huge demand for more, more, more. This divided the country. The North had slaves, but relatively few in relation to the South. And there was a growing abolitionist movement that believed slavery was a moral evil and therefore had no place in a modern society like the United States. And there was the South, whose economy was dependent on tobacco and cotton farming, which was driven on the backs of slavery. And as these farms grew, the need for land grew, and both the North and the South began looking west to expand. Both of them were pretty much morally okay with pushing Native Americans out of their lands, but the North wanted to prohibit slavery in any new territories, and the South wanted to let each new territory decide for themselves. So things started to get ugly. And next episode, we will pick up somewhere around, spoiler alert, the Civil War in American history. In the last episode, I gave an overview of what we would be looking at in science over the next 10 episodes, specifically astronomy. We are now into chapter one, which covers the solar system. As a reminder, I am an expert and authority in no way whatsoever. I simply have an interest, and the the children and I have been delving into the the beauties and mysteries of the solar system and astronomy over the last year and a half or so, and I'd like to share some of what I have learned about the solar system. Chapter 1. Our solar system includes everything affected by sun's gravity. By the way, sol comes from the Latin meaning sun. That's where solar comes from. You could even think of our solar system as being our sun system. Humans and life forms on Earth continue to exist because of the healthy presence of our sun. At some point, the sun will die. But that's a long time away, so don't stress too much. Also, a lot of smart people believe the universe is expanding, so that could possibly be good and give humanity time to find somewhere else to support life. Think of it as a race between the sun dying and the universe expanding enough to find us another home. But don't think of it right now. Don't let the looming extinction of our planet and all life forms in our solar system be at the top of your list of concerns. Your first concern should be, did I make my bed this morning? If you didn't, no worries, I didn't either. Moving on from total annihilation of our species and basic morning chores to the fundamentals of our sun system. Here we go. The sun is approximately 93 million miles away. That is a fairly accurate number, as I believe smart people have actually used a measuring tape to arrive at that exact number, or radio telescopes and such. More on those later. That number of 93 million miles is significant because it's such a big number that it was decided to invent a new measurement for gauging distances in the universe, an astronomical unit, or simply an AU, which I believe is also the abbreviation for Australia, maybe? Anyway, one astronomical unit, or AU, equals 93 million miles. So, the solar system has a bunch of planets and other stuff orbiting around it, like moons and asteroids. Some of these planets are known as the inner planets. They are the four planets closer to the sun than the others, and they're known as terrestrial planets because, and of course you know this because you've studied Greek, terra refers to Earth. So they're terrestrial planets because they have iron cores and are made up of rocks, similar to Earth. The terrestrial inner planets are, in order from the Sun, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. 
Earth is the only one known to support life. It has several things that make it unique, such as liquid water, an atmosphere, an ozone layer. Mars is known as the Red Planet and has a book series written about it by Pierce Brown. I highly recommend. There are also the outer planets. Not surprisingly, the outer planets are farther from the sun than the inner planets. They are not terrestrial. They are gas giants because they're basically made up of gas and sludge sludgy gas. They're way bigger than the terrestrial planets. Jupiter is the biggest of them all, but Uranus has the coolest name, but Neptune has rings. There's also dwarf planets. Pluto is the most well-known of the dwarf planets, probably because it used to be an actual full-fledged planet. Did it change in any significant physical or chemical manner? No. It got demoted. Suddenly and sadly. Imagine being a king, a good and mild-mannered yet competent king, and then suddenly someone decides your kingdom isn't big enough, so they change your listing on the map, so now you're a mayor of a town instead of the king of a kingdom. That's Pluto. Is a dwarf planet bigger or smaller than a regular planet? Figure it out. Use the contextual clues to figure this one out. Dwarf planets still orbit the sun like their big siblings, but their gravity isn't strong enough to suck in planetary debris and keep the neighborhood clean. So you're wondering what happened to Pluto. Pluto's narrative really is the Macbeth of planet stories, except poor Pluto didn't really do anything wrong at all, so it's really not like Macbeth at all, besides a, spoiler alert, tragic ending. Also, Pluto gets demoted rather than dying. Sorry, spoiler alert to what I just said, Macbeth dies. But then again, we all must die, including the sun, someday. Memento mori. I cannot prevent myself from throwing in a, a wonderful Latin phrase whenever possible. Memento mori. Remember, we almost die. What happened to Pluto is this. In 2005, scientists discovered a dwarf planet called Eris. This discovery made them rethink the definition of planet, as Eris was almost as big as Pluto. Rather than adding Eris as a tenth planet, they subtracted Pluto from the major leagues and made him a dwarf. But ideally, Pluto is happy now having some playmates his own size. Pluto, Eris, and Ceres, a happy trio of dwarves. Some other stuff about the solar system. Guess what? There's other stuff floating in the solar system besides planets and dwarf planets. The largest are asteroids. Asteroids are large chunks of rock that get hurled around and mostly hang out between Mars and Jupiter in a sweet spot called the asteroid belt. Comets are pretty cool, too, in the sense that yellow snow is cool. Kind of icky, gross, cool. The best way to describe comets is analogous to the famous Charles Chaplin quote, Life is a tragedy when seen in close-up, but a comedy in long shot. Comets are beautiful when seen from, f from far away. That beautiful light trail of white streaking through the night sky. That's the fun comedy part, the pretty part. Up close, they're basically made out of dust and rock particles, frozen gases, ice, that sort of stuff, as they do their big, giant, clunky orbits. So, enjoy from afar. At first guess, you might think that meteoroids, meteors, and meteorites have nothing to do with one another. After all, they all have totally different suffixes. But guess what? They're all related. A meteoroid is a chunk of rock that breaks off from a bigger interplanetary rock and then makes a beeline for Earth and its mesmerizing gravity. Then that meteoroid becomes a meteor when it enters Earth's atmosphere and starts to burn up from all the friction. This turns them into a bright streak that some like to gleefully call a shooting star. 
So basically, meteors are not so much the chunk of rock itself, but the flash of light we see as it's self-immolating. They're like the rainbows of the night, only they usually die. If, and this is a big if, if they make it to Earth without burning up, they're called a meteorite. So the life cycle is kind of like that of a butterfly that started off as a millipede or ant or whatever they start off as. A surprising number of meteors have actually hit the Earth. If you need one more thing to worry about, then think on this, but find comfort in knowing that if you get hit by a meteorite, you will die instantly, even if it's a small one. However, if you're standing at your mailbox and your mailbox is a ways from your house and a meteorite hits your home, then you might survive, but your house will likely not. And the resulting destruction may or may not be covered by your homeowner's insurance, at which point you may wish you had been struck dead instead. But the point is, try to be aware at all times that you could get struck by a meteorite and take appropriate actions to present, to protect yourself and your loved ones. There's really nothing you can do except worry and hope that it doesn't happen. Have you ever heard someone ponder the idea that too much knowledge can sometimes be a bad thing? This might be a good example. You probably don't need to know anything about meteorites, including the fact that they exist and could instantly annihilate you without any warning. On the other hand, if you own a large piece of property and it landed a safe distance from your house in a pasture where there wasn't any cattle, you might have a good-sized swimming hole excavated for you without having to rent any earth-moving equipment. So there's definite upsides to meteorites as well. Just remember to try and avoid being underneath one if possible. It's not possible to avoid them, so just avoid ever looking up. If you're going to get hit, you're going to get hit, and there's really no way you could move in time to avoid one. Just know that they're real, and they have had sad lives too. Remember, they once belonged to a comet before they ripped themselves free. Studying and observing. There are a lot of ways to study the universe. The easiest is to read a book about it that somebody smart has written. Also, it would be great to study the universe in a time-hopping, wormhole-slithering spacecraft. But there's other ways, too, like telescopes. Pretty much most objects in space emit electro electromagnetic radiation. Examples of these include radio waves and visible light. Thanks to Galileo, Galilei, and others, we can use telescopes to help us observe this emitted radiation and therefore understand space better. More, understa more understanding is good. Cosmic empathy. There's a few footnotes to chapter one that I'd like to include that don't necessarily go with anything, but I felt they were important to include. So these are my footnotes to chapter one on the solar system. There's a great song by a fan by a band I call the Fuzzy Buttons um, to my children anyway, and the song is called Surf Solar. It's 13 minutes long and it's filled with atmospheric and electronic bleeps and really cool sounds, but it's still very poppy and easy to listen to. Surf Solar. When I use the phrase a long time, what I mean is billions of years until the sun croaks and earth gets vaporized. So if that's been heavy on your mind since I was talking about a long time, it's not anything you really need to worry about today. There are projects that involve such things as using the gravitational slingshot pull of thousands of asteroids to pull earth out of orbit. So when the sun sets for the final time, our descendants will have a chance in a separate but equal solar system. But unless cryogenics gets significantly better in our lifetime, we probably won't be around to find out whether that works or not. Also, have you seen the Christopher Nolan film Interstellar? See it. 
one of his top five films among a stellar lineup of films, and it will make you think heavily about existence and the nature of love. Also, there's a Russian filmmaker, Andrei Tarkovsky, who made some very interesting space-themed films about existence and such, but they don't zip along quite like Interstellar. So start with that. Start with Interstellar. Also, there's a good chance you haven't studied Greek because it's no longer taught as a core subject in most schools. I have an opinion on that. I won't share here. But I will just say that, of course, kids should still be learning Greek and Latin. But I won't tell you why here. And I have no opinion on learning cursive. None. Well, maybe a small opinion, but when have I ever been opinionated? One more thing. Memento mori is a wonderful Latin phrase, aren't they all, that basically means we all must die. It's just one reason that A Series of Unfortunate Events is one of the most delightful and wonderful series of all time. If you read the 13-book series or have watched the delightful three-season Netflix adaptation, you'll learn some Latin phrases such as this that will be enormously beneficial to your life education and ability to pull out a good classic phrase or two in an apropos situation should you ever need to, the second time I've used apropos in this episode. Also, if you're trying to understand good humor or figure out exactly what irony is, then you should certainly educate yourself more by reading this series. Also, it's just the one last thing. Um, this would be a good time to reread the story of the Tower of Babel in the biblical book of the Bible entitled Genesis chapter 11. See you next week for Astronomy chapter 2. Okay. We are here for episode two of This is the Long Version, and apparently I am the special guest on my own program. My wife, Becca, has asked... Hello. We're approximately four inches apart, and our knees are touching. Uh, I think that's violating certain protocols in place right now, but I'm fine with it, with our knees touching, etc. Go ahead. What did you (laughs) want to talk to me about? So here we are. It's almost one o'clock, and... I did get a shower, um, but we had, you know, we were going to do this and that, and all four kids are here, varying ages. One of them is calling you right now. Yes. And I should note for for and our one, audience, one our, is that you sleeping. are currently holding one. Yes. Right now, not the thirteen-year-old or the twelve-year-old. I mean. Yeah. Kind of, kind of, nursing, sleeping, but if I put him down, then he'll fall apart and anyway so this morning you had hopes and dreams yes of getting certain things done i always have hopes and dreams how many of those have you accomplished as far as the alignment of what i've done and accomplished based on what i was planning on doing at the beginning um i'd say right around zero percent yes possibly you know what let's say one to two percent i'm kind of there as well the children are alive and fed although we're coming up on needing to do that again after still needing to thank you for the groceries you got you braved yes you you braved the wild you would be you don't watch the walking dead with me but i would go back i've seen sections but i would go back and rewatch it with you if you ever wanted thank you and i would choose you to have as part of my team, as part of my crew, if we were in that kind of situation. Thank you. I appreciate that. Although I do get distracted. This is I, news you are not to married me. to Martha Stewart, or I, I don't want to be married to Martha Stewart. A uh, what do you call those mommy blogger? 
uh, Instagram mom people. <laughs> okay, first of all, there's one blogger in the family that's me. Well, besides our two children. Yeah, but you also like blogs last week. Life but. would run so much smoother if we all did things according to what you say. <laughs> okay, I I'm gonna agree with You're, you on a certain point. People have told me that somebody told me a couple of weeks ago that they thought I would be a good rich person. And I thought, you know what? I would be willing to experiment with that idea. I, I would too. <laughs> I personally, I think that I, I could be a good wealthy person. Could I be a good dictator, a good autocrat? Would I be a good, if I just had, if I was an all powerful leader, um, would I do great good? Yes. I think the answer is yes, but I don't know. Yeah. That's a scary proposition. And we are co-leaders of this family. And that is a choice that means sometimes we have afternoons filled with the death of hope. <laughs> I have, I, I know I could be organized and uh, that's a whole nother topic. Anyway, so a lot of times we talk at night like I should have done this and that and oh he's so sweet she's so sweet should we go wake him up and then tomorrow you know I'm gonna spend a chunk of time with this kid and just really soak in that time and then learn this from that one and all that and then the next day full of morning you know hope and sunshine I, I don't mean to interrupt but there's a child singing out there and I feel like I need to go tell them to be quiet no that's alright so, fathering is something you do quite well. Really? We've had many situations arrive, uh, arrive, arise. Or arrive. Today, that took a chunk of time we weren't expecting to spend that much time dealing with. Um, but you're a good father. I. You're a good mommy. <laughs> oh no. You are a good mom. Dare so, I say don't give up. You are a one-of-a-kind mom. An inimitable Why? mom. Why, thank you. And I would not want that to change. And a wonderful yeah. mom. Yes, you thank are. Thank you, dear. Don't thank give me you. that look. Okay. I will give you that look back. I do appreciate that you have our kids' best interest at heart and in mind. And you are willing to put aside even the cup of coffee or whatever you're doing to really sink that issue home or get to the heart of the matter that needs to be addressed minus laying a hand on the child in anger which i vowed many years ago so the I things they do. dread the most is a what they call a long talk from you but you're very good at them and they don't always have to be long we're still trying to get that across to the. Yeah, the, it, that is definitely something that I did not see coming. That the most miserable, dreadful thing our children could imagine is, oh no. Here's another long talk, from the mean man. That would be. You're pretty good mean. at him. But there again, I get distracted. I I appreciate you, dear. Thank you. <laughs> I 
deeply appreciate you. I do. Exactly. I'm going to let you go. I'm going to try to present you with a cup of coffee at some point today that we could pop, probably maybe enjoy together. I would love that. Um, but I just want you to know there's still a little hope left today. I appreciate you most of the time. And I'm going to go now. Okay. And I would just like to say that you, you are sometimes distractible, but you are also very distracting because I like to laugh with you. I like to laugh at you. And some people mm-hmm. may understand what I'm about, about to say, and some people may not. But I like to have you laugh at me, too. Thank you. I'm, I'm okay with that because I know that it's, for the most part, Thank an you. affectionate laughing at. And yes. when you raucously, uh, loudly laugh <laughs> at something I've done that may be different than other people may do, I, I appreciate that you appreciate things about me that are different. Thank you, and, and I, I appreciate that. Not only appreciate, appreciate that appreciation. You appreciate that about me. So for appreciating that, I appreciate you. Yes, there, and I appreciate that you are willing to be a leader with some things and a good follower with others. In the ecosystem of, of art, for example, then you need not only an artist, but you need an audience and you need a critic. Like an ecosystem needs to exist of multiple types of people and a family or an organization or any gathering of people needs to have people who are willing to be a follower and who are willing Mm -hmm. to be a leader. But I think that we kind of fall into this idea of there being absolute leaders and absolute followers. And there are cases, I mean, most countries have a single leader that that's a whole that's a whole nother discussion but i think there's also a more nuanced view of of leadership and followership that is very important and that's the idea of leadership being a relative thing followership mm-hmm. being a relative thing i think you can have great leaders who also know how to be great followers and because mm-hmm. somebody is a great leader during wartime for example doesn't mean they're a great leader during peacetime winston churchill for example Mm -hmm. So you can have people who are great at leading during certain circumstances or during certain times, and they need people to follow them well. And I think that I am a good leader in certain situations, in certain areas. Mm -hmm. And I think that you are a great leader in certain situations, in certain environments. Thank you. And I am learning and trying to be not only a better leader, but a better follower as well. And I would also like to lead a charge to bring a positive connotation to the term follower. Being a follower, not just as a passive term. I follow. I like it. But the idea of following is an active, engaged process where you are part of an ecosystem that is progressing and creating, producing, that is making the area around you better. Yes. So I think the idea of following, of being a follower, is such an important one, and I need to be reminded of that sometimes. I am appreciative of the many times that you trust me and my instinct and experience in certain areas, and I am very grateful for your leadership and followership in other areas. We have some overlap as well, um, 
Thank but you. But I appreciate that the support one, one of the children, the child you're holding is trying to grab our yes. cable. Not cool. Probably a sign that I need to okay. exit. Well, and I'm going to go change the little laundry that I forgot about yesterday that I put in the day before. Would you mind <sighs> leaving the seven-month-old with me? I need him to help me wrangle some cables here and All shut right. things down. So if you don't mind me yes. keeping him for some assistance, right. I would appreciate that. Will you Over be okay and out. solo? I will. Thank you for being here. The Countess Becca, my wife, a delight as always. The Thank first you of many for letting me conversations. interview you whenever you are. Thank you for letting me be interviewed. You got it. I, we should probably keep this more formal, so I'll shake your hand. This is a handshake. Thank you. All right. Love you. You too. Last episode, we talked about Judaism, the first two chapters, and we're going to jump right into chapter three, entitled Rise. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob was also called Israel. His kids were called children of Israel, or simply Israelites. Jacob, also known as Israel, had 12 sons who went on to form the 12 tribes of Israel. Those sons had many children, and their children had many children, and so it went. More and more of them. The more of them there were, the more powerful they became. They kept wandering throughout the land, always searching for optimal pasture land. And because there were a lot of them, it became easier and easier to fight and defeat other tribes to get the best land. A famine is a super bad situation where there's not enough food and people start to starve. Guess what? An extra super bad famine happened, and the Israelites decided to head down to Egypt to find food and good pasture land. Was this a good idea? In the short term, yes. They settled in the province of Goshen, which was close to the Nile River. For quite some time, things went smoothly. They kept making babies and growing food and taking care of their animals and worshipping their own god. The Egyptians were big-time idol worshippers. They had tons of gods. They may have been more into worshipping tons of gods than anyone else in those days. They worshipped fish and birds and beetles and dogs and cats and crocodiles and just a lot of different animals and gods and idols. So they weren't super excited about the Hebrews not being into idol worship. Eventually, this became a problem, especially as the Hebrews continued making babies and growing their numbers. The Pharaoh called together his senior advisors and asked them for solutions, for ideas of how they could deal with the Hebrews and their growing power. From a pragmatic standpoint, the Egyptians were actually pretty smart, and their understanding of human psychology is commendable. Their reasoning went like this. A. Slaves don't think for themselves. B. Slaves think as they're told to by their masters. C. If we make the Hebrews slaves, they will think and believe as we do. So that's what they did, and that's what happened. The Hebrews slowly began to embrace the thinking and beliefs of their masters, the idol-worshipping Egyptians. But the change was too slow, and they were still making babies, and their numbers were still too great. So the Pharaoh called together his advisors again, and this is what they came up with. This is truly atrocious. What they decided to do was to drown all the newborn Hebrew boys. That way, the Hebrew girls would be forced to marry Egyptian men, and the Hebrew culture, religion, and bloodline would be phased out. Phased out is what we call a euphemism. A euphemism is a nice way of describing something that's horrible. So that happened. Too horrible to even think about. But that's what we have to do with history. Sometimes think about the horrible things so we can fight to make sure those things don't happen again. 
As a note, historians estimate that Moses was born around 200 years after the death of Abraham. So, amidst this horrific time, an allegedly adorable baby was born. Aren't they all? His name was Moses. According to the law, he was supposed to be drowned, but history is also filled with examples of good people breaking bad laws because they are wrong. The laws. Thank goodness Moses' mom was a lawbreaker. She refused to let her moderately cute baby boy be drowned and put him into a basket to float down the Nile, which was technically actually sort of following the law. So baby Moses is floating down the river and we never see him again. Or do we? Stay tuned. See you next week. I'm going to wrap things up here. There were some other topics I was going to cover, but I'm going to save those for next episode. And I'm just going to talk for a couple minutes, some assorted thoughts on this pandemic at 40 years old. Now, I am not 40. I am 43. My wife is 40. And I thought, since I've already talked to her once, why don't I just make it twice? Only I'm not going to talk to her. I'm going to talk about her. These are just some thoughts on a 40-year-old experiencing this pandemic we're in. So a pandemic at 40 years old. I caught her stealing, a theft of great proportions and grand in its scope. What was it, you ask? Before I answer that question, let me answer the who. She stole from me. She stole from her daughter. She stole from her three sons. She stole from us all. And she did so with a mischievous grin as she took her thieved seconds and held a cup of coffee in one hand while she slinked on the edge of the bed thumbing through a gentleman in Moscow with the other hand, savoring the product of her criminality, those seconds that belonged to her. I alerted the children immediately, and we all descended upon her to reclaim the precious gift of herself that she had taken from us. May her penitence be real. May her future actions not be so callous. May she remember that her time is to be divided up amongst the treasures that are us. She takes over the kitchen, Charlize Theron action star style, flitting from cupboard to cupboard, nursing simultaneously, pouring, measuring, scooping, cleaning, dancing, making magic with limited ingredients. She works her way through A Gentleman in Moscow, a work I consider one of my favorite fictional works of the last decade, and for which I am grateful to my sister-in-law, Melani, for introducing me to. She wrestles with her sons, fiercely, ferociously, and my heart sings as I watch her taunt and annihilate them. Because I'm your mom and I'm the best wrestler in the family, she screams at them, or at least that's how I remember it. She plays with a boy outside, a three-year-old. It is raining. They chortle and giggle while making a stew out of seashells and stones. It rains harder. They laugh. There's a dance or a fight. The laughing continues. She wears her blue flannel. There is something about this blue flannel that makes her eyes light up and my wondering gaze linger longer. A Scandinavian goddess in blue, in rough, playful, je ne sais quoi blue. She is beautiful, but better and beyond that, she is pretty. She makes food, a great deal of food, and it is mostly delicious food. Sometimes it is simply food. Saturday lunch was one of those, and pho is not a favorite in our family, though I stood steadfastly for her in the face of enemy children by reminding them that it is, in fact, calories, and they need calories in order to survive. She was feeling less upbeat about the strength of my support and at one point referred to me as Mr. Switzerland. She watched my brother, her brother-in-law, 
perform a live set of tunes and talking on Instagram. That would be Jeremy M. Long, who, yes, is on Instagram. Yes, is an incredible musician and producer and sound engineer who you should definitely get to know and who I am still grateful to after two episodes for helping me um, with sound-related things on this podcast. Anyway, I love the way that musicians such as Jeremy have continued finding ways to connect and to keep making melodies. And I love how tuned in Becca, my wife, is to catching every performance that he gives. I love that. She is generally up before me in the morning, and one of her favorite sneaky little things to do is snap a picture of me and whatever child happens to be mashed up against me still sleeping. It is a strange and comforting realization every time I see another snapshot and realize I am with someone who loves me enough, even in the middle of a pandemic quarantine, to take my picture while I'm sleeping. This goes back many years, and perhaps she will someday receive a claim for this photo series. To some, this might sound creepy, and honestly, if it was someone random who came in through the window to take pictures of me sleeping, then I would be less comfortable with it. But it's her. I'm glad she is who she is and illuminates small moments over the looping waterfall of time. Her hair looks extra pretty on a rainy day, and I told her, but it is not my telling you that I told her is important. Though it is important to let people know when they are extra pretty in some way, it is the fact that standout moments need to be preserved in some way for the libraries of time. And the way the rain and the wind played, played with her locks and laid them down diagonally across her forehead as we walked outside in bluster was a dance that will never be enacted in exactly the same repetitions again. Her hair is pretty tomorrow, but I can see it is different, a different pretty, and I may choose to not write about it then, but I have today. There is the euphoria of a late evening cup of coffee and the accompanying strange excitement at late night paper sorting in front of an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. She made nachos on a recent night. We snuggled in and watched a film with a fire going, and it was a fitting end to this last week of our pandemic. Life is strange, life is normal, but we have to be appreciative that life simply exists and that we can count ourselves in that number. Let us remember and work to build hope, find solutions and create community in the ways we can right now with those who are struggling, those whose struggles are, who are greater than ours and those who are lesser. I do not take for granted that I am in this with people I not only love, but like. I do not take that for granted. Thanks for listening through to my second episode. Let me know if you have any suggestions, requests, thoughts, feedback, etc. I, I appreciate you listening, taking the time to do so, and I would love to hear if you like anything you've heard. Please subscribe if you're so inclined. In the meantime, until next episode, you can go to verylongchronicles.com or verylongmedia.com for more thoughts, stories, photographs, musings on life, love, education, and people. Play hard, make stuff, be kind. Until next, Joseph out. Bye.